following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So in light of the fall, I came across a story that I had to share with you, and it has to do with pumpkins. And there's this phenomenon where if you take a pumpkin and you place it when it's a small, just kind of budding pumpkin on the vine, if you place it inside a jar, the pumpkin will grow and fill the jar, but it won't break the jar. It will grow into the exact jar shape. And so when you're ready to harvest that pumpkin, you can break the jar off from around it, and you will have a jar-shaped pumpkin. Well, there's a one farmer who decided to take this idea and he built a mold and he started putting pumpkins in this particular mold and the mold shape he created was Frankenstein's head. And so this is the product of his pumpkins when he took them out of the mold. Check that out. That's pretty impressive right there. Okay, so now you can buy a Frankenstein-shaped pumpkin or a Franken-pumpkin as they call it. And now you don't even have to carve your own pumpkin. We've gotten so lazy as a civilization. <laughs> we can't even carve our own pumpkins. Anyway, that is really incredible. In fact, um, here's a picture of them with the actual uh, molds that they, would, they grow the pumpkins in on the vine. You can see them taking the pumpkins out of the mold. And that's, I mean, that's really, really cool. If you could find and buy a pumpkin like that's already been shaped like Frankenstein's head. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty creative. That's pretty cool. But technically speaking, if your goal is to grow the healthiest pumpkin, technically speaking, that's actually not a healthy pumpkin because it's actually misshapen. It's been in this mold and it's been confined and restricted and it's shaped in that particular design, but it's not really a healthy pumpkin. A healthy pumpkin needs the freedom to grow according to how its DNA and, and all the surrounding environment can, can grow it to be as healthy as possible. And you can shape it and it's cool, but it's unhealthy and technically misshapen as a pumpkin. Now what we're studying together is this idea that each one of us has specifically in the exact sphere throughout our lives exactly how God designed for us to be in each of these spheres. What do you mean by spheres? I want you to think about your friend group for a second. The people you spend the most time with as friends. The ones you have influence over. Think about your family sphere. Your immediate family. Extended family. The, you have influence to some degree, regardless of your position in that family. You have influence on that family. I want you to think about not just your family. Now move into the work sphere. Think about the people you work with. The, the customers that, that you work with. The, the, the people you work for, that's part of your sphere. Think about maybe you attend school, the school that you go to. Think about the neighborhood or the apartment complex that you live in. Think about the people in each one of those spheres. What we believe is that God has intentionally planted each one of us in these spheres and he has an agenda that he's wanting to work through us. He's got some way he wants to turn that world upside down. He's got some change for good. He's got some culture he wants to shift. There's some way that he has placed you there to be a catalyst to transform that 
according to his plan. Now, the challenge is there's one thing that can happen that's like a jar around us as we're growing, and it gets us stuck in this one shape. And I believe this morning God wants us to hear what this jar, what this mold is, so we can shatter it so that he can grow us into the shape and grow us into the the plan that he has exactly for our lives. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, or if you have um, your study guide, hopefully you brought your study guide with you, you'll find the scripture in there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are going to look at verse 6 and take a look at this together this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Here's what this verse says. It says this. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, if you, get, if you read that verse by itself, you can, you can kind of get the sense that you're entering right into the middle of a conversation. And it's actually a piece of correspondence. This is actually a letter. And so there's a we, the authors of this letter are three guys by the name of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and all three of these guys are missionaries. They're this first-generation missionary. Some of this first generation actually walked alongside of Jesus, and this first generation is going around the world spreading the truth about God, and they, even within that first generation, get it all the way throughout the world. Started, they, they spark this incredible movement of people following Christ that's still alive and thriving that we're a part of today. So this first generation, these three missionaries in particular, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are these catalytic movement-starting leaders. And as they've traveled around, they stopped in a city called Thessalonica. And the people who live there, the Thessalonians, are the the recipients of this letter. They are the you in this letter. And they stop there. These people, some of them begin following Christ, and they're writing this letter back to them. Now, in the first part of this letter, chapter 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say this. We've heard that you are imitating us. And they're saying that's a good thing. and, And if they're saying you're imitating Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who are you imitating? You're imitating these guys that are not just leaders, they're catalysts, movement starters, world changers. And they're saying, you're imitating us, and then in chapter 2, they're giving him, here's the attributes of how we lived so that you can imitate them more clearly. And so when we read this, this is something that we are wanting to imitate in our lives so that we can be these kind of influencers and leaders in our spheres to transform that environment in the way that God wants us to do. So let's look at this. Again, what is it that he's saying that they did that they're supposed to imitate? Look at verse 6 again. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Here's the attribute. He said, if you want to imitate us, he says, we never sought our own glory. It was never about us. He said, we didn't go through Thessalonica so we could just get some more Twitter followers or more subscribers to our channel. It was never about us. The idea wasn't, hey, let's go through there so that when we leave, they're saying, man, that guy, Paul, he is so smart. 
Or, you know, every time I met with Silas, man, he always knew what to do. He's such a great advisor. What am I going to do without him? Or, man, that young Timothy, he is like a spiritual all-star. Man, I really admire that. He says it wasn't about us. It wasn't for our glory at all. It's not, it's not about us. We came with a completely different agenda. And he's saying, now you go imitate that in all of your spheres, is what he's saying to the Thessalonians. And he's saying that to us. Now, when you hear that, when I hear that, that's not a huge surprise. That's not shocking to hear something like that in the Bible, don't live for your own glory. I mean, we expect to come across something like that in the Bible. But man, when you think about, about actually activating that in your life, I mean, that's, that's not so easy. I mean, think about it, that is a root, seeking our own glory, that is a root that goes way deep down into our souls. I don't know when the last time you uh, weeded a garden was, but there are those weeds that you can just pretty much grab the leaves and pull them and you get the whole root. They're easy. And then there's the one that you grab the leaves and you pull it off and it breaks right on the stem, like right at the top of the soil. Like, oh, now I got to dig out around the stem and try and get it and try and pull that one out. But every now and then you get one. Have you ever had this happen? And you pull it and you get like two feet of root. That's really satisfying. You're like, I just pulled that from the heart of the earth, okay? It just keeps coming. You're like, wow, okay? That, this subject is like that kind of root. The idea of whose glory we're living for, are we living for our own glory, that like gets its roots way down deep into our souls and the roots coil around all the different parts of our lives. So it's easy to just say it, oh, well, I'm not gonna live for my glory, but man, that's hard to do. I mean, the first thing when we wake up in the morning, I am not li living for my glory. So what am I going to wear this morning? Oh, I bet that would make me look good. I wonder what they'd think if I wore that, or how does that make me come off? I mean, step one in our lives, so many parts of our lives, we enter into a room and it's like, and, and it's so hard not to think, how am I coming across? What is their perception of me? How can I turn this conversation to make me look good or make my story look good or make me the funny one or the smart one? It's so hard not to turn all those things to be about me, to be about my glory or to get attention or praise or affirmation because deep down so many of us or maybe to some degree all of us, there's this inner drive where we want to be affirmed as being somebody, being successful. And it's not as easy as just saying, so I'm just not gonna live for my glory. Because that kind of creates this glory vacuum in my heart. It's almost like, okay, because here's how this works. Okay, I am not gonna live for my glory. So this morning, I am not gonna wake up and wear what's gonna make me look good. I'm gonna wear what makes me look bad. So I'm going to put on something so that people see me and like, wow, look how bad they look. They must be a really humble person. Wow, look at that person's humility. And that's what I want. I want people to praise me for my humility. And what's happened? I've just gone all the way back. Now I'm just being glorified for not how good I look, but I'm being glorified for my humility. It's like this. When, when, it, comes to, when it comes to this vacuum in our hearts, it, it's uh, for glory, it's like I'm, seat, I'm seated on this throne and I'm like, okay, I'm no longer going to be on the glory throne. So I get off the throne and I sit down and I look back and I'm back on the throne again. It's hard to get off of that throne. I mean, what is our option? All right, I'm not going to live for my glory, so I'm not going to dress to look good. And I'm not going to dress to look humble, so I'm going to just dress randomly. I'm just going to pull out from my closet 
And whatever I get, I guess that's what I'm going to wear. How do we actually, what's our alternative? How do we not live for our own glory? It's like our hearts have this glory vacuum that it's trying to fill. It seems like all of us are wired to pursue glory. Otherwise, what else do we fill in there? Here's how the scripture addresses it. Are we wired to live for glory? Here's what it says. Isaiah 43, 7. This is God speaking. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for, what does that say? My glory, whom I formed and made. Christian, are you made and created to pursue glory? Yes. God's glory. You're wired. In fact, what it says in that verse, he says, you've been formed for that purpose. He constructed you when he thought, okay, I'm going to make this person like this with this personality and and these idiosyncrasies and this DNA. He made you and wired you for this purpose. It's for his glory. That's the framework through which we see our lives. And, and when that, we realize that, he, that actually successfully is the only thing that will actually get us off the throne because it fills the vacuum for glory. It actually expels us off the throne. We dethrone ourselves and enthrone the only one that's worthy of sitting on that throne, God, and keeps us from getting back on the throne. It's the only type of glory we can pursue that fills the vacuum that ultimately will not make us go back to, once again, it's really just about me. We're pursuing God's glory, and that then filters into every part of our life. The same author, Paul, who was writing to the Thessalonians, wrote to a group of people in the city of Corinth, and here's what he says. Watch this, 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, So whatever you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The clothes you wear in the morning, what you eat for lunch, how you talk to people, how you treat people, how you text people, what you post on social media, decisions you make, it's all to glorify God. It's all to bring God glory. Now time out for a second. Wait a minute, you're saying, okay, I I get it that it's annoying when someone else is very obviously living for their own glory. I mean, you'd agree with me. It's it's repellent when you find someone who's just all about themselves, right? That's just someone that's just really difficult to hang around. So, but you're saying, okay, I understand God telling us to not live for our glory, but it sounds like you just said that God is saying, no, but I'm living for my glory. Like, doesn't that make God like, like all those annoying people that we might come across that's about himself? Like, isn't it saying that God is about himself? Well, it's absolutely the scripture is saying we are to not live for our own glory, but God does exist for his own glory, and here's why that's okay. When you meet that annoying person that's all about themselves, what you want to say to them is, hey, buddy, the universe doesn't revolve around you, dude. And you kind of want to put them in their place a little bit, maybe knock them down a few pegs and say, okay, let's put you in your place. I mean, this is actually who you are. But let's think about putting God in his place. You probably have to put him up infinite notches from what you can 
actually conceive of. Because you know what? The universe does revolve around him. The reason it's annoying in another human, but it is exactly the way it should be with God, is because that human is trying to act like a little God. That's why it's repellent. And think about the alternative. How, we kind of want to say, okay, God, we'll, make, we'll put your glory first, but it seems like it would be better if then you say, but you'll put our glory first. So we'll put you first if you put us first. It seems like, doesn't that seem like it would fit a little better? But this is why that absolutely cannot happen. Because if we put someone first above God, we're idolaters. If God puts someone over himself he becomes an idolater. Okay, my brain just exploded. Did anyone else's brain just kind of explode? Something oozing out the ears here? Okay, think about this. God can't possibly put anything as a priority over himself because he is God. The, the way this universe is designed to function properly is that we are designed, along with the rest of the universe, to give God and God alone glory. And when that comes, goes wrong, I mean, that's what we're talking about is theology here. This is a piece of theology. When that theology goes wrong, so many other pieces of our life get off track. It's like I want you to think about your computer keyboard for a second. On the keyboard, there are two keys that have little bumps on them. And the, it's the J key and the F key, and it's got a little bump because it's supposed to tell you where your index fingers are supposed to go. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen? You look at me like you've never seen a computer before. You got you tracking with me? Okay. All right. It's where you put your index fingers on those little bumps so that you cannot be looking at the keypad and, you, and your, your keyboard and you're typing correctly with your muscle memory. But have you ever been copying something and gotten your fingers off the right keys and you, you did not put them on the right keys and started typing? And a few minutes later, you looked up at the, at the screen. Have you ever done that before? It's completely nonsensical. Okay, this concept of living for God's glory and not our glory, this concept is so fundamental. It's like the home keys of your life. When this gets off track... It affects almost every other human interaction. The only way to edge ourselves off the throne and not make it all about us is for God to place God rightfully on the throne of our lives and be about his glory. Because if we can't take ourselves off the throne, then every single sphere that we enter in, we go home with our family, deep down it's really going to be about us. With our friends, we have fun, but ultimately it's about us. At work, it's really about us and our career. At school, it's about us and where we're trying to get to. We'll go through life and all these interactions and it'll really just be about us. We've got to first dethrone ourselves, put God on the throne, and then we can actually enter into each one of those spheres and serve and actually put others before ourselves, actually lift up those around us. You know, last week we talked about the importance of being a servant and serving those around us, and we talked about it from the standpoint of, of greed, that there's greed that's lurking under the surface that's sometimes so hard to see. 
And that greed makes us ask the, think that this sphere or our position or our, this relationship is for me. It's about what I get out of it. But servant leadership is so important, we've got to hit it from another angle. It's not, a just, it's not just about sometimes we can think it's for me. Sometimes we can think it's about me. We think it's about us. And it's not about us. We are there to serve whatever position of influence you have with friends, family, work, school. You're there to serve those around us. This idea is a, an idea, this idea of leading as a servant is an idea that's, that's picked up steam in the last 50 years in leadership think tanks in the marketplace. So many years ago, back in um, the, the 60s and 70s, there was a guy by the name of Robert Greenleaf. And he had been an executive for AT&T and went on after he retired to teach at MIT and Harvard Business School. And he began looking around at all the leaders he saw. And all the leaders that he saw were this me-centered, top-down, autocratic, you're-here-to-serve-me kind of leaders. And he said, this is terrible. And so he, he wrote this landmark essay called The Servant as Leader and started a whole servant leadership. He's attributed to starting the servant leadership movement where he said, all good leaders are first good servants. A couple decades later, another leader by the name of Hans Finzel, he's an international leader, writes, he wrote this book on the top 10 mistakes leaders make, and he said the number one most widespread mistake is this egocentric, autocratic type of top-down leadership. He says that's all about, people say it's all about me, and they treat, and that, that floods into every single part of their leadership. It's just the number one mistake. Then in 2001, a little bit more recently, uh, a guy named Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And he did this, this incredible research. And he took these, this 30-year span, 1965 to 1995, and he looked at all of the, the Fortune 500 companies from that 30 years. It was something like over 1,400 companies. And they did this research into them to find, okay, what the best of the best that had, they weren't just good, I mean, they were great, they were outstanding, and they were outstanding for a long period of time. What made them so great? And so they kept whittling down to get the elite of the elite companies, and they whittled down from 1,400 to 11 companies, and they dug in. What are the, the commonalities in all 11 companies? And the researchers kept coming back to Jim Collins and saying, you've got to see, there's something that's similar about all 11 CEOs from this group, that's not true of the rest of the mediocre group that are on the Fortune 500. And he said, no, 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 this is not about leadership. Ignore the executives. I just want you to focus on the companies. What did they do? What was their strategy? So they dug in and they kept coming back. The, the greatest statistical similarity, you have got to look at these leaders he said, no, it's not about the leaders. They kept saying, no, you're missing one of the most consistent statistics is these leaders. There's a commonality there. And finally he gave in and he said it turned out to be the most provocative uh, outcome of the entire study. He said there was something that all 11 of these leaders had in common and they termed it level five leadership. And he defined it like this. Let me just read you a quote. He said, level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company, not themselves. 
He said, as they interviewed around, it was like weirdly consistent. The other leaders around that CEO would be like, man, this guy, he's modest, he's understated, he doesn't believe his own press clippings. When they're asked, man, look at all you've done. He says, oh, it's not me, it's this team. He consistently found a humble leader. He says they were not looking for it. They tried not to see it, but they could not ignore that, that somehow that had been used to turn that company great. There's this movement about Servant leadership. Now, why do I tell you all of this from just like out there in the marketplace? Why do I bring that up? Because sometimes this happens every now and then. Our society stumbles upon a truth that's been God's truth. He's been telling humanity for all of eternity. You know, a long time before Robert Greenleaf in 1970, there was another leader who said this. Can I read it to you? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your, what's that word? A long time before Robert Greenleaf, Jesus Christ started a movement of servant leadership. And his followers continued saying things like, it's not about you. It's not for your glory. Don't go after your glory. You're about someone else's glory. In fact, going pursuing our own glory when we're egocentric or pride-centric, you know what that's like? Pride is like this, it's like this jar. It's like this mold that we can only grow as far as its limits. It's confining and restricting. And there's all these ways that it holds us back. Let me just quickly give you four ways pride and ego hold you back. Here's the first one. This is how pride misshapes you. It stifles your growth. You know, you can put a pumpkin in a jar and you get this cool little shape, but you know that there might be so much more that that pumpkin could become. Actually, another thing that happened in California this year is they broke the record for the largest pumpkin ever grown in California. I want to show you a picture of this pumpkin. Look at this thing. That is over 2,300 pounds. That's like a, more than a one-ton pumpkin. Okay, you, you can put a pumpkin in whatever mold you want. You could make it your face. A bunch of little pumpkins shaped like you, but that might be cool, but you're confining and restricting the growth of that pumpkin. Your pride is like putting you in a mold that restricts you from growing. Why? Because pride never lets me square up to my flaws. It dismisses them. It never lets me hear constructive feedback. It doesn't create an environment to hear someone giving pushback or criticism. It doesn't want to hear about blind spots. It doesn't want to be self-aware. It wants to explain away the painful things because it doesn't want to admit that it needs to grow. Pride stifles growth. But here's the second thing that pride does. Pride not only stifles growth, pride will suffocate your team. You can put it in a mold. In fact, you could put your whole team in a mold of yourself. 
and you'll have a little mold, but growing them to be just like you, having to do things just the way you do, controlling it so they can only do it your way is going to suffocate them. And in the end, you might have a bunch of little replications of yourself, but you're, you're stifling their growth. You're suffocating them. God has given you a team to empower so that they can become who God wants them to become. Pride, it stifles your growth, it suffocates your team, and pride stunts your success. See, pride as in leadership comes out and it's always got to be my idea. Only my ideas win. Why? Because in the end, I want, I want my idea to be what we celebrate as successful. So whether it's the team that God has put together in you and your spouse to raise your kids the study group at school, the team at work, whatever it is, he's brought you that team to empower, to encourage, to leverage together so that God can work his plan through you. And here's the last one. Pride strangles the future. One leadership writer by the name of Patrick Lencioni, he wrote a, a book called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And the first temptation he said that so many fall into is that they fall into the trap of putting status over results. And instead of being so bent on the success of what God wants to do through my team, I care more about preserving my status. Because what if God wants you to defer to a team, teammate? What if God wants you to defer to another opinion? What if God wants to go in a different direction than you think you should go? What if God wants you to lean on them? What if God wants you to get out of their way? What if what God's trying to do, what if someone could be so bent on where God wants to take the team that they have the humility to stop and say, wait a minute, am I even the best person to lead this team there? Because if not, I'm going to get out of the way or raise someone up behind me. See, the right order of how things are supposed to come together, it's for God's glory first. And once that dethrones me, now I can serve all of those around me. Can I put it another way? Your life, your story, who's the main character of your story? Unless it's not you. God is the main character of your story. Jesus is the main character. We're just supporting cast. It's not about us. It's about him and his glory. It's about his agenda for what he's wanting to do. And when we dethrone ourselves, we're equipping ourselves to be able to serve. But man, I think about surrendering all of this to God, like just saying, here, God, you can have it all. It's all for your glory. I'm going to leverage my life just for your glory. Every interaction, every place, every place I enter into, everything I eat or drink or do or wear or whatever, it's all for your glory. Man, what? I can get the logic of why I should do that, but why would I want to do that? That's surrendering everything, my whole world to God. Why would I want to do that? Well, here's why. What Paul said to another church in a city called Philippi. 
as he challenged them in a similar way. Listen to what he says. He says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, I got that, Paul, but I know I'm supposed to do that. Why would I want to do that? And he goes on to give us the logic. Listen to what he says, Christian. Here's why. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but equipped himself by taking the, emptied himself by taking the form of a what? The form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christian, that's what your life is about and my life is about. It's not, okay, at the end of my life, will there be tongues that are confessing how great I am? Will there be knees bowing saying, well, I'll follow after you and I, I, wow, look how great you are. No, Christian, our life is about raising up one name, the only name that is above every name, because one day what we are angling towards is that every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow before him. Here's why he is the only one that can sit on the throne of your soul. Because he, the king of the universe, the only one that has no need to humble himself, said, I am going to lead the universe by serving it. And he humbled himself He became like his creation, God in the flesh. Jesus came to serve us. He was humiliated and rejected, spit upon and tortured, and died on a cross to take away our sins, rose again back from the grave so that we could too spend eternity in heaven one day when we die. He, the only one who has no need to humble himself, chose to humble himself to serve you. He says, so follow after me in my footsteps and do it all for the glory of God. Your life is to make one name famous. The name, the only name that will echo into eternity, the name of Jesus Christ. And church, Christian, if we can turn our lives over to say we all link arms and exist to lift up only one name. Watch out for what he can do among a group of people who are bent on lifting up the name of Jesus. He just might turn this community upside down. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.